they can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me. All I'm looking for in deposition of the defendant is what it is I want to start my case with. It isn't about your war with that lawyer. It's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Welcome back. Today's guest is uh, Mel Martinez, who uh, I have known since I was dramatically younger. My wife was actually the summer camp counselor for one of his kids, and I've watched Mel practice law and serve uh, since I was literally a teenager. So for those that don't know, he was a very successful plaintiff's lawyer in Central Florida for about 20 years and worked with uh, some of our most well-respected firms in town, including a a long-standing partnership with now Federal District Judge Skip Dalton. Uh, They were Martinez and Dalton. And then Mel had a second career where uh, he became the Orange County chairman and then got appointed into the presidential cabinet as the secretary of HUD. Uh, which is really incredible when you think of Mel coming here to the United States from Cuba at 15, and then he ends up in the presidential cabinet. And in particular, he was there during the time of 9-11, so he really uh, got a front seat to one of the most uh, unique times in our country's history. He went on to be um, a United States senator serving in the Senate until 2008, And uh, Mel is a good man, and I think there's a lot uh, for anyone here. I hope you enjoy it. I'm so glad to be here today with uh, Mel Martinez in the J.P. Morgan Chase offices. Thank you for spending some time with us. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Well, everybody knows that you spent time as a United States Senator and time in the presidential cabinet. And while I want to ask you about those, I really would love to just hear about the story of how you got to Florida. Wow, that's a good story. And uh, I'll try to give you the abbreviated version of it. But um, at the age of 15, my parents made an incredible decision, which was to send me to the United States from Cuba uh, without them. Uh, Basically, Cuba had gone from a you know, not essentially uh, a Jeffersonian democracy, but it was also a country that was doing very well economically and in many other ways. We had a happy life. And the Castro Revolution sort of uh, ended everything and created a tremendous amount of upheaval. And between their fear of military conscription, which was coming, uh, the lack of religious freedom and just the general lack of freedom and a, a very dictatorial oppressive regime, they took a risk uh, sending me in a program they had heard about, which was a very much underground kind of a program uh, between the Catholic Church and the U.S. government to get young children out of Cuba that wanted to be in a safer place. How, how old were you? I was 15 by the time I left. We started the process when I was 14, and I arrived in Miami at age 15 in the care of the Catholic Church. And so that was sort of a little different way of getting here. But I became a Floridian in 1962, uh, and an American, really, uh, resident at that point. But uh, anyway, came through Miami airport on a Pan-American flight when things could still be done that way out of Cuba before everything really clamped down. I got sent to a camp in Miami where I was kept for a while, another camp in Jacksonville, 
and ultimately our, our the head of the camp, our social worker, convinced the bishop that we needed to be in, in homes, that those camps were not a way to keep teenage boys. Yes. And so I was fortunate that a very nice family in Orlando answered a call from the pulpit on a Sunday and agreed to be a foster family to me. So I came to Orlando in the uh, summer of 62. I started Bishopmore High School that same fall. Uh, we had scholarships because the church was taking care of us. And uh, that began my life in America, but it also was my first real introduction to trying to speak English and not doing very well at it, but there was no, no bilingual education in those days, so it was just a sink or swim approach, and I fortunately was able to swim and not sink. Can, can you remember uh, being in the airport in Cuba? Um, oh, yeah, i never forget that day. You know, I mean, look, it was, uh, I mean, everybody had to go through the same process, and if you talk to any other Cuban refugees that came in that period of time, we all were taken into a, a glass room that we it became referred to as the pesera, or fishbowl in Spanish, where we could see our families, but we could not talk to them or touch them, you know, we were just there. And I was there for, I don't know, about six hours that day while they did a search and while they went through your documents and all of that, and mostly it was just a bit of harassment, ultimately. Yes. What was going through your brain, if you can remember? Well, you know, I kept seeing the pain in my mother's eyes. I had already said goodbye to my dad. Uh, being the, the strong guy in the family, he couldn't bear to go to the airport, so he actually said goodbye to me back in our small city where we lived. And uh, my mother, I could just see the pain in her face. And what was going through my mind is that I really didn't know what I was facing. I was a combination of excited and afraid, but the excitement probably overrode the fear, and I tried to not worry or think about what was truly happening because it didn't seem as big a thing as it ultimately became. Yeah, uh, and you, you, know, you weren't realizing you were going to be in the presidential cabinet someday. Well, no, nor that I would not be going back in three to six months, like my dad had told me, you know. And so we thought at the time this system is not going to last. And so I, you'll be back in no time. And so it really wasn't until I landed at the Miami airport and we were told, okay, it's children traveling alone, come over here. And I could see these families, you know, mom, dad, uh, they were all joining another relative in Miami and the joy in their faces while I saw us in this kind of a confused, what the heck has just happened? You know, where are we? What are we doing? And, I mean, and we knew what was going to happen, that we were going to be picked up and someone was going to take care of us. But just that stark realization at that moment that I was alone in the world, several weeks and days of incredible homesickness and incredible confusion and fear and worry. I travel one night, I get homesick. <laughs> well, I've never even been to summer camp, okay? So it was really, it was baptism under fire, but it was quite a moment. Yes. Tell me about the uh, foster family. You know, we lived in... Pine Hills, which was uh, a very uh, middle-class kind of neighborhood. A lot of people that worked at Lockheed Martin out on Kirkman Road. Uh, and that's where my foster dad worked. And uh, I would, uh, uh, I mean, they were very sweet, nice people. They had two other sons. Uh, and I became like a part of their family. Now, it's never like your family, and as kind as they were, it was never... Uh, completely comfortable, but they made it about as well as one could make it, and I began to learn English with them, and 
they were very caring and very interested in me, and that was really terrific. I mean, they were very nice people, and uh, it was never home, and it was never my real family, but they became family. Where'd you go to college? Went to Florida State. I actually started here in Orlando at Orlando Junior College, which was a precursor to Valencia, and it was located where Lake Highland is today. Okay. UCF didn't exist. I'm talking dark ages now, way back when. <laughs> and so I went to uh, junior college for a couple of years, and my parents were able to come. We were reunited during that time. Okay. Four years later. And then I went on to Florida State. Always want to be a lawyer when you're in college, well, or what, what happened? You know, it's interesting how, what a difference people can make in your life. I was interested in international affairs because my life had been involved in an international affair, the Cold War and all of that. So I was in an international affairs program, which was very much what I wanted to think about doing. But during that time, I had a professor who basically said to me, have you thought about going to law school? And until that moment, I honestly had not, mostly because I didn't think that I could aspire to that. And he, um, he pursued it and would talk to me after class about, no, I really think you should go to law school. You, you've got you know, the capacity and the potential. So he believed in me, and he opened that possibility in my mind. My father always wanted me to get an education and obviously wanted me to pursue a graduate education. I mean, he never was content that I was just going to have a, a bachelor's degree. And so when I was getting into that senior year mode, the professor had talked to me. And my dad is saying at the other end, you know, what are you going to do with your life? You know, what's your job going to be? Well, basically, he was a professional person, and he couldn't conceive of someone not having some kind of a professional degree. And, and, and so it was the professor opening the door to my mind to think in, that, in those terms. And then my dad, uh, with some persistence, which I've utilized on my children uh you've done well you know anyway so that's with what, exception <laughs> uh, so i um i i essentially began to think that law school was the way to go where, where in the journey do you meet kitty your wife i met kitty before law school okay. we uh were in a class together i needed i was about to graduate and um, my uh, guidance professor said you have not taken an anthropology course so you have to do that and I thought, I don't want to take an anthropology <laughs> course. But lo and behold, Kitty was really interested in anthropology, so we met there. <laughs> and, uh, and It worked you know, out well for you. It worked out great. It was a very lucky day. How many years uh, have you been married now? We've been married 48 years. Wow. We were married in 1970, and then I began law school as a newlywed. Congratulations. Thank you. People married earlier in those days. So for those of us that would like to have one spouse and not two, what's the best marital advice you give? There's several things. Number one is uh, always be willing to give a little more than you expect. In other words, go more than halfway. I think uh, having faith in your life and in your family is an important uh, bonding mechanism as well. And then, you know, particularly for busy lawyers, I recommend date night. Yes. You know, the busier you are, the more you need to take a night out to have date night. And I think that's really an important an important part of maintaining a romantic relationship, even in spite of the busyness of life and the things that you know seem to take you completely away from thinking about one another. Have date night and keep communicating. So those are 
I think those are pretty much boilerplate advice, but I, I believe in them, and I think you should live by them. They're working 48 years, so they're, it seems like good advice. So far, so good. And she's a very patient woman, too. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Um, tell me about um, the proudest moment outside of family. Take family out. Proudest moment of your life. Oh, I, I would have to say uh, taking the oath of office to be a member of the president's cabinet in the Oval Office, with a close second being taking the oath of office on the floor of the Senate from the Vice President of the United States uh, to become a U.S. Senator. So those two moments are pretty parallel. What, what, were the, what was the experience like when you were in the Oval Office? Well, I had a lot of family there with me, which was a wonderful thing. Uh, being a Cuban family, they, you know, the, the person that did it before me had three people there. We had about a dozen. <laughs> so it was a, a wonderful family gathering. Uh, but no, I think uh, obviously I was in the Oval Office a number of times, you know, during my time in the President's Cabinet. And it was never commonplace. It's a very, very special place. It's a place that is somewhat mystical, I think, and uh, worthy of a lot of respect. When you think about others who've occupied that office and who've been there over the years, uh, it's really quite a, quite a humbling moment. And. Uh, Equally, the cabinet room, you know, because I went to my first cabinet meeting and I can remember sitting around the table and there's a, a bust of, uh, of Jefferson and another one of uh, Franklin in there. And I remember looking at them and, and then thinking about Jefferson being a secretary of state, just like Colin Powell across the table and about all of the people who'd gone before me about, I could think of a Teddy or an FDR presiding over a cabinet room. I could also think about John Kennedy at the height of the missile crisis, sitting around that cabinet table with people like me. And that sort of uh, historical kind of moment became a much bigger reality on about 9, uh, 13 or 14 of 2001 when we had our first cabinet meeting after 9-11. And uh, that was really a, a high moment. I mean, the president would always walk in after the cabinet is at the table. When he does walk in, everyone rises. And then on this particular day, we all just spontaneously burst into applause. And, um, you know, that was uh, quite a historic day to live, be a part of best leader you saw in your whole time in D.C.? How many years were you in D.C.? A dozen. Okay. Well, I think um, not always correct, not always uh, perfect, but I think George W. Bush's leadership in the aftermath of 9-11, which is quickly forgotten by so much else that's happened in life, I thought was a tremendous example of leadership. It was someone who had only been president eight months at this time and who was still feeling his way along as a president because I, I know I was there. But at that moment, he sort of grew. And, uh, you know, I think some of the mistakes that may have come later in his presidency were born of that moment where he felt a need to protect the country and to exercise leadership. And I think he really led. And I think in a moment of crisis, that's when you really can take the measure of a leader. So uh, as what imperfect as we all are, you know, yes. I think he did a great job of leading. 
What did you see uh, in terms of leadership traits in uh, W that are transferable to any leader? Well, I think, first of all, to be decisive. I think one of the traits of a leader is to say, okay, this is what we're going to do, and to have clarity in that. I think vacillation and obfuscation and not giving clear direction, I think, is the worst thing that you could have. And at that moment in time, he provided leadership. He provided a, a path, and he, uh, you know, was clear. One thing I remember uh, hearing from Donald Rumsfeld about him was, and Donald Rumsfeld had worked with presidents. I mean, he was in the in the Congress when I was a refugee at a camp in Miami, so he's had a long trajectory. Yes. But Rumsfeld saying, with this guy you always get an answer to your question. That's one of the real things a president has to do is make decisions. So part of leading is deciding and then giving people the inspiration they need to follow. Seemed like he, he really stepped into a void and cast a vision uh, that the whole country kind of stepped into. No, he did, you yeah. know, and, and the moment, I mean, from that cabinet meeting I told you about a couple of minutes ago, the president went to the National Cathedral and gave a speech. From that speech, he went on to New York and stood on the top of a burned-out fire engine with some firefighter to his left. And you can remember that moment yes. with the bullhorn. And, and that's what the country needed to hear. You know, They needed to hear, we're going to be okay, and we're going to be safe, and we're going to do what it takes to make sure we're safe. And I think it's about living in a moment of crisis and rising to that moment and making a people feel uh, that they're going to be okay. Let me uh, let me go to a totally different area. Um, you graduate from law school and begin practicing regular law in what year? In April of '73, I finished law school. I took the bar in October of '73. So that was the year I began to practice in Orlando. I, I had the the privilege of uh, hearing you speak at a event once where you were sharing about helping uh, another group of lawyers who had come over from Cuba oh, yeah. after you and helping them prepare for the bar. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was um, uh, friends with a number of uh, people in the Cuban community, you know, and part of that was a group of uh, Cuban lawyers who'd moved here, were refugees and all of that, and a program had been devised for them to be able to practice law. So they went to Florida, University of Florida Law School, for a year, and they then were given the opportunity to take the Florida bar. And they had to study for the bar like everybody else and had to pass the same bar you and I passed. And so I would meet in my conference room at the law office uh, and have them in in the afternoons after work, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the evening, and we'd be there for a couple hours, and I was trying to just trying to give him a little flavor. I mean, I was still fairly young in terms of having just taken the bar not too many years before, maybe five or six. And so, you know, trying to impart a little knowledge to them of what it was like and what they needed to be boning up on. And, and then they have questions, you know, they go through the, the courses they were taking. I don't really understand something on procedure or whatever. And, and trying to highlight for them the things that I thought they needed to know. And that was very, really uh, quite uh, rewarding. And I saw some of them Armando Paez, for instance, you know, Paez and Paez, his sons now are actively yes. practicing, and Armando's still uh, an esteemed elder member of our community and, and, and legal bar, and the Cuban community particularly. 
And so a number of them were able to practice law and do real well, and I, I just thought it was a terrific thing to have been involved in their, in their journey. Best lawyer that you ever saw? Oh, man, that's tough. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I saw many good lawyers. I thought that uh, Bob Banker in Tampa did a fabulous job of defending tort cases, you know. Uh, I, I'm going to try to keep it out of town because if I start local, it may. You got to include your brother uh, in well, there. My, you can't my not brother, include your my, brother. My brother's the best malpractice <laughs> defense lawyer around. John Bussey did a great job. I'm telling you, people on the defense side. Yes, yes. People that it was tough to go up against. Uh, Harry Anderson, tough, mean, uh, well prepared. All these guys were always well prepared. And to me, that's the hallmark of a good lawyer. Got to be well prepared. On the plaintiff side, I say uh, Judge Skip Dalton was. Pretty darn good. Yes. Did a great job as a plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, could argue a case at a lot of intellect, and I always uh, value my association with him. He, how long were you all partners? Ten years. Yes. Yeah. He, uh, I, I remember the one and only case I, I had with him. I was twenty five years old, and I have told the story of that case <laughs> fifty times. Uh, he made that level of an impression on me. Yeah. Um, you said uh, preparation for is what makes the great lawyers. What are some of the other traits that you've seen? And now I want to talk about communicators, those that are they're advocating orally for people. What are some of the traits that you see common? Well, I would say, first of all, ethics, okay, before we get to okay. the communicating part. But when you said the most important trait for a lawyer, I think, is integrity and ethics. I mean, that, that is the hallmark of a lawyer. But in communicating, I mean, I think you've got to be able to stay on the level of, of who you're communicating with. So if you're arguing in front of a judge, don't get ahead of the judge. Make sure you're explaining in a way that they're going to understand because you're not the only case I've had. And they probably likely, particularly in state court, have not had a half a day to study your case. Yes. So come in prepared to educate them, to present. So effective communication, I think, in that realm is about communicating with some level of, of let me bring you along so you know what I'm talking about. I think also in all communications, when with juries and all of that, it's about credibility, about maintaining, keeping the faith, uh, about uh, don't get too far ahead of yourself, but make sure you're you're delivering on what you're saying you're going to do. Uh, so I'd say the integrity of your presentation. And I think in communication, I think you have to somehow convey that you believe what you're talking about. You know, that is integral. If you're just reading from a script, I mean, sometimes I watch our president, you know, and when he's reading from the teleprompter, you know he's just reading. He doesn't mean a word of it. But when he's speaking from the heart, as much as I may disagree with him sometimes, you can tell he's really more or less feeling it. And I think we always, uh, and I know in my own case when I was giving a political talk, if I was reading it, I was never as effective as if I was saying it. And I think it's because you have to have that eye contact, you got to have that conviction that comes across when it is your words that they're hearing and they come from your heart. That's good. I'm going to ask you, you were talking about credibility. I've never asked this question, but it's something I've, I, I've experienced. In the moments where uh, you've built your credibility, you feel like your credibility is strong, but then you've lost it. Um, it could be through your own doing. You just made a bad choice, and somehow you got a little off on your credibility with whoever you're advocating to. It could be someone else's choice. Uh, but now you feel like your credibility's taken a ding. It's taken a hit. Uh, how do you walk through that? That's probably really one of the real tough things to do, you know, because I think once lost, it's difficult to regain it, not as much with a judge, perhaps, as it would be with a jury. 
But I think, and I don't know if I've thought about this deeply, but I, I mean, I think you just got to somehow go back to the beginning and try to reestablish your credibility with them by reminding them of those things about which there couldn't be much dispute. You know, I think if you go back and you say, okay, you know, kind of let me start over here. Yes. Uh, sometimes you can lose your credibility by what your client does or says, you know. I mean, yes. that, that sometimes they don't help. Or, I mean, to me, one of the easiest ways to lose your credibility in front of a jury is by what an expert witness may say that you don't anticipate that they have been prepared, but they somehow don't care that much and say something that's perfectly stupid. And so when that happens, boy, you've got to repair it, you know. And so I think if you can do it by redirect if it's a witness situation or if you can do it by – I mean, the, the problem for you as, a, as an advocate is that you're not going to get a chance to do it until you get it back up on closing, you know, or, or on rebuttal. Uh, but and I, time's ticking and where that's people it, are making you know? up their mind. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's – I mean, I think that's just a tough one, you know. That's why you don't want to lose it. That's yes. why you always want to maintain your yes. credibility. Um, I find for me it is the first available opportunity I can say I'm sorry well, as yeah. quick as I possibly yeah, can. Yeah, yeah. Saying you're sorry is way, way underappreciated and underestimated. <laughs> yes. Shifting to back to family, we're, mm-hmm. uh, we're joined by your son, the esteemed Johnny Martinez. How many kids do you have? We have three. Okay. Um, Tell me, as someone who I know has uh, taken parenting very seriously, seeing the byproduct of your efforts, what what parenting advice would you give? And I know it's different at every stage, but yeah, just some it broad brushes. I mean, I think broad brush, I'd say spend time with your children. Uh, give them of yourself, not of your wealth or of your whatever. Give them of your heart, of you. Read stories at night when they're little go to the ball games when they're at another age or coach whether we would be better take the time to be with them whether you're joining a weekend program and go camp or you are doing a sport or you're doing going to the school plays and all of that i mean i think through their lives you've got to let them know you're important to me you matter to me i love you and that should never be in doubt no matter what else happens how did you deal with the tensions between uh, I've got all these commitments, all these mm-hmm. time things that I'm, I, I have to, or at least I feel like I have to say yes, yeah. and I want to be fully engaged as a parent? That, that's a very difficult thing, uh, particularly when you're in public life. Fortunately for me, I only had one at home at that time. But you've got to make the time. In spite of all that, you've got to come home and... Even if your dog tired and it's late, you got to take a few minutes, you know, and, and do something in the evening. Or, and it's about when you're with them, do away with your electronic devices, do away with other distractions, and really be with them. Let them know it is you and me. We're here as one. And 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 I realize that. And so it might be seasonal. You might not be able Monday through Friday. If you're in trial, I mean, heck, you you wouldn't be around when there's a trial. But when the trial's over, trials end. When it's over, you say, okay, this weekend, we're going to do something as a family. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, uh, and I, I mean, I think that one of the biggest uh, wasters of time and family time is, oh, let's go have a drink after work. Eh, you know, that's way overrated. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems great at 24 and 25 and 26, and then when you're 35 and 36, it is not quite as great. Not quite as great. Yes. What, what was your favorite part of practicing law? 
I mean, you know, probably the least favorite is waiting for juries, but I think that's the worst. Uh, I, I think just it's, helping it, people. You know, the idea you get a lot of satisfaction when someone says, "Oh, thank you." I mean, I've run into people years later who said, "You, you did a structured settlement for my children. They were able to go to college because of what you did." You know, I mean, things like that. Are, to me, that's that payoff. It's that gratification that you get knowing you did a good job and that a client really appreciates you. Um, favorite case. Do you have a most memorable case for yourself? Yeah, I had a case. You know, I was saying this yesterday in another context, but it's so true. You can go through your legal career and always anticipate that the greatest and bestest is going to come in the future. This was an early in my career kind of a case, and I had a wrongful death case in which we ended up with a products liability claim suing uh, Jaguar and Dunlop tires. and. That was my favorite case because the way it turned, you know, went to England and found the name of someone who no longer was with the company, but who knew the goods, had the goods that they were hiding the peanut on me. And I pursued the guy and I found him through an investigator and I got him to Florida to look at my uh, defective tire. And he ended up telling me this is one that has been recalled all over the world, but the U.S. because it was too costly to recall it here. Anyway, uh, you know, I mean, game done. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, once they took his deposition, we became. Uh, anyway, that that was just my favorite in the standpoint of it, it was a tragic situation. Uh, two young daughters and a wife left behind at a young age, and uh, one in which a lot of perseverance because it was not easy and I ran into so many rabbit trails I had that tire examined by people who said I don't know yeah something's wrong with it I don't know what it is until I finally by taking a trip overseas and deposing people at uh, the Dunlop headquarters uh, we were able to ascertain what had gone wrong and finally it was like wow and then once that happened everything fell into place and I was you know so that was very gratifying, but that happened early in my career. In fact, it was a year that John was born, <laughs> uh, as I recall. Uh, and so it was really uh, not a time when I thought, and that was the most fascinating, the most interesting, and maybe the most rewarding case I think I ever had. Yeah, that's good. Tell me about, I want to I spitball a bunch of pieces of the practice of law and whatever piece of wisdom you either personally experienced or you observed, just share it. So if we were to start with um, uh, client selection. Be smart about client selection because uh, I never regretted turning down a client or uh, asking a client to find themselves another lawyer. So client selection is critical. Communicating effectively with judges. I used to sometimes draw a diagram. You know, I had a third-party case and uh, came on a counterclaim and all that. And you just, I just brought in a file folder where I had boxes for each of the parties. And I would open that up and hand it to the judge and then argue based on that. This is who I represent over here, and this is what I'm trying to say. And so I think, uh, again, communicate by bringing them along and helping them understand your case then, of course, your legal theory or whatever else it is you're trying to persuade on. Dealing with... And come uh, prepared, by the way. Yes. No judge should ever put up with an unprepared lawyer. Dealing with difficult opposing counsel. I'm sure not all of your opposing counsel was, was perfect. No, no. There's a lot of people out there, and 
my brother and others tell me that today there seems to be less, um, uh, you know, politeness with one another, less And you certainly probably have seen that in politics as oh, well. Oh, no, of course. It's the same degradation of social norms that we've seen in politics, and I think it's happening in law tremendously. We used to talk about, well, that guy or that gal practices Miami-type law. Yes. And I think Miami's migrated north a bit. Uh, and so it's unfortunate. I think we need to treat each other as members of the bar, as people worthy of respect, and we should treat each other with respect. That's not how you win cases, you know? And you know what else? When the going gets tough, don't leave your ethics. Don't start accusing the other lawyer because it's a Sunday before trial, and now there's some witness you didn't prepare for, and you're now trying to call the other lawyer unethical because it wasn't on the witness list, but yes, it was. And you know what I mean? Don't, yes. don't try to, to go hitting below the belt just because you're feeling the pressure. There's pressure on the Sunday before a trial. But, you know, courage, uh, I don't remember who it was. It may have been Churchill. He said a lot of cool things. But anyway, uh, uh, you know, courage is, uh, is grace under pressure. You know, having the yes. grace to handle the pressure. How about failure, dealing with uh, failure? And we don't have to limit it to the practice of law, but... Um, I always felt like you learn more from a bad result in a case than you do from the ones you win. I mean, I, I, old lawyers used to say that, and I think it's so true, because when you win, you think, oh, my gosh, I did everything perfectly. Well, nah, maybe you didn't. But when you lose, you pick over the bones of everything that happened. Uh, you can do that on elections. You know, I remember talking with John McCain after his loss of a presidential race, and, and oh, gosh, you go back over things. And so uh, I think you have to treat failure with a sense of, of learning and a sense of uh, humility and understanding that that's just part of life. Um, if you're willing to share, what, what do you perceive as the, the greatest failure you've experienced? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, I think in my political life that I had a couple of failures in my own personal way that I approached some issues, that I allowed the moment of the politics to get a little carried away with what I would have preferred to look back upon and say I did. Uh, it didn't happen often, and I tried to correct, but it, it should never have happened kind of thing, you know? And so those are those are certainly personal failings that I would not want to want to repeat. I, I think, you know, I've, I, I'm not one that looks back a lot. I mean, I, I think that's another trait that I have that's really helped my mental health. I, bet. I put things behind me, you know. So if it happened, it happened. I did my best or whatever. Learn from it and move on. Don't dwell on negative. Don't dwell on, on the mistakes. Don't dwell on what didn't go right. Learn from it. You know, own up to it. That's one thing, by the way. I think when you make a mistake, first thing you need to do is say, okay, this is on me. I screwed up, and here's why, you know, and what I intend to do about it. And, uh, you know, whatever it is, you need to clear the air, get it out, and uh, don't be afraid to say, I'm sorry. That's good. That's real good. Uh, that's good. That's real good. Um, you basically have had, it looks like to me, had three careers. It's like you you were a real trial lawyer, a fully functioning trial lawyer. Then you had a political career that was a fully functioning political career. And now you're in a season where you work with uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. What's your official title? I'm chairman of the Southeast and Latin America. 
and uh, that is a uh, John refers to it as I'm the Swiss Army knife. I do a lot of <laughs> a lot of different things, and I'm more most of all a leader for the region, uh, for the bank. I'm eyes and ears to Jamie Dimon and the leadership in New York of what's going on in this area of the world. They call me when they want to get into something, and uh, and I also help with. Uh, you know, giving the bank a face and hopefully uh, allow the bank to help bankers bring in clients and that kind of thing. Um, people that are in the practice of law and don't love it. Uh, one of the things I've heard over the years is like, I don't, I don't know what else I could do. <laughs> you know, where, and, and, and uh, to be really candid, what I've heard is people say, I don't know where I could, I could make the same amount of money as I do practicing law, and even though I don't like it, they muscle through that. Um, what advice would you give to that person? Well, get out of the rut and get out of the box, because there's a lot of living that isn't, doesn't include law, and there's a lot of ways to make money that doesn't include law. Now, you've got to have a game. You can't just say, well, okay, well, I'll quit practicing. Now what do I do? I think you need to develop some creativity about analyzing your life and what it is you want to do and what your talents are. But there are many ways. I mean, I think a lawyer, I always, you could tell in the Senate immediately who were the former trial lawyers and who were, or lawyers and who were not, you know. There's so much that. How can you tell? Because they were articulate, because they knew how to present a case, because they somehow had a life experience that seemed to take them into a little different situation, you know. And, um, and we usually got along well. <laughs> we just seem to be pretty... Like, trial even lawyers, Democrats, trial you know. lawyers like to be around trial yeah, lawyers. Yeah, I mean, you know, Harry Reid used to always come talk to... I didn't particularly like Harry Reid, okay? He's a cranky old guy. <laughs> but he, he would... You know, I was a trial lawyer like you. I mean, you know, Lindsey Graham and, and Arlen Specter now uh, passed on. He was an old prosecutor from Philadelphia. And Joe Biden, you know, of course, he's been in the Senate most of his life. But I, I, so I guess he's I'm, part trial lawyer. Yeah, somehow he yes, is. He's got yes. the BS going and all of that. So <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, it was it was always fun to share time with lawyers. And I think you ought to consider what is your skill set and what else can you do in life. In terms of the wisdom that you would give, if you were to talk to a group of people that are say uh, twenty five to thirty five. And they're practicing law. They're in the early parts of their career. What what advice would you give them? Well, I first of all, would say always behave in an ethical fashion and in a um, uh, dignified and polite way with your peers and the judiciary. I would say learn from those who've come before you. And I know a lot of those folks might be in a solo practice. You got to know another lawyer. You got to invite an older lawyer to lunch. Um, most lawyers will accept a free lunch. And, and don't be willing to seek advice. You know, when I got to the Senate, I was given a great bit of advice, which is you need to go to the lions of the Senate and invite yourself to their office to have coffee or, you know. None ever turned me down. I would say, Ted, Senator Kennedy, uh, I'd like to come by, and, you know, I'm new, and i just like to learn from you and hear what you have to say for a new senator to be thinking about doing. I did that with Kennedy. I did it with Biden. I did it with McCain, I, I, you know, on bipartisan level. And, and it was so beneficial. I did that a little bit as a young lawyer, you know, try to learn from others. I was always in a firm. So in those early years, I had Jerry Billings and Bill Frederick and Butch Wooten and Dan Honeywell, who were just great guys to 
be willing to mentor you. Can I? Let's go to lunch. So use your time uh, over meals and whatnot to befriend lawyers that have been around, who've been around longer than you. Perhaps some retired lawyers. You know, they would love nothing better than to be invited to to counsel or to mentor a younger lawyer. You don't have to know them. Just look them up. You know. Um. I've asked this question, and it's it's actually started to intrigue me, and it is, what advice do you give to people to be a good mentee? In other words, how do people position themselves so that older lawyers want to invest their life in them? They want to have lunch. They want to be generous. What does it look like to be a good mentee? I think is to be inquisitive, interested, and grateful. You know, I think you need to let them know that I really need to learn. You, you got so much you can share with me. Never hesitate to flatter a lawyer. So <laughs> you've been through so much. You know, some of the people you've had on your show before, I mean, those are great examples of mentors that I think any of them would love to know there's an eager young person who's trying to get it right, who's trying to do it right. If you can convey that to a mentor, potential mentor, They'll love to take you in a mentee, as a mentee, and then say thank you, be grateful, take him a bottle of wine, or you know, send him a little present at Christmas if they're taking the time to do that with you. So be thoughtful and be grateful and show it. That's good. Um, what is the biggest mistake you see that age group making today? To take out the practice of law, yeah. I'm talking 25 to 35. What's the most common mistake you see? Oh, I think is that they have this feeling that they got to be tough and mean and, and, and aggressive and full of themselves. That's just wrong. Wrong on all counts, you know. I think it's that, that aggressiveness and that cutthroat attitude and, you know, I got to make sure I stand up for myself and all that. Eh, no, nah, that, that's not really cutting it. I think you need to be uh, respectful and kind to other lawyers and all that. So I think that goes a longer ways than that brusque, rough and tumble attitude and also the idea that you got to make a buck if you don't worry about making a buck you're going to do much better than if you do and i'd say don't be worried about you know how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal think about the long run think about the picture the big picture and think about your reputation long term that to me will give you more financial rewards than any short-term gain if you have to say to a client Okay, you don't owe me anything. You're not happy with your work. I mean, yeah, I mean, don't let anybody take advantage of you, but you can also, uh, you know, you have a problem with the bill? Okay, well, let me reduce it, you know? You don't want a client leaving mad and telling others that you, you, you know, right or wrong. In the long haul, it'll, it'll serve you uh, best, I think. I, I have this distinct impression of you writing off fees a lot when you were practicing law. <laughs> I could be wrong, but uh, anytime. They felt, you know, a client felt aggrieved, usually with no reason to. I wouldn't want him leaving my office mad, you know. I mean, that just, I, I, number one, you can't be that wedded to money. And the less, the more detached you are from it, the better you're going to do, I think. And don't argue with your partners about it. If you, if you have to argue with your partners about it, you got the wrong partnership. Uh, just curious, if you were to, it, let's assume you, you have how many grandkids? Five. If any of them were at a season where they were talking about going to law school, what area of law would you tell them to get into? Oh, man, I think it depends on who they are, what they like, you know, who yeah. they are. I Personality. Really think, I think, yeah, I think it's about yeah. them having to make that choice. I wouldn't tell them not to go to law school. And I find a lot of people say, oh, I would never tell my kids to be a lawyer. Hey, you know, I mean, I think, I think it's a great profession. It's a great education. 
What I told John is, you know, go to law school. You don't always have to practice law, but you're going to learn. You're going to have tools. You know, the reason J.P. Morgan was interested in bringing him here was because, well, you know, he's a lawyer. He's got a law degree. He practiced law. I mean, you know, that's great training. It's great training. I mean, think of all the stuff you learn that others just wouldn't have a clue about. Yeah, I remember Judge Dalton telling me how transferable all the skills are yep. and that the belief that we're captive to the practice of law is just... It's just wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it really is. Yeah. Um, let's take a different age group. Okay. Let's say now we're dealing with, say, 40 to 55, mm-hmm. that age group. What advice would you give them? Well, begin to think about your future. Uh, begin to think about uh, how you can translate what you've done uh, towards a late career sort of a thing, whether it's, should I be thinking about buying a building, selling a building, mortgaging my building, finding partners that I can sell my practice to? I mean, those are things you need to think about. And you shouldn't think about them when you're 65. you got to think about them earlier. And I think just having a, a career plan that, I mean, look, the first years of your practice, you just say, I want to get clients, I want to get people in the door, I want to make a buck. At some point, you got to start thinking, okay, now how is this going to end? You know, and where do I go from here? How do I maintain my enthusiasm for the practice? Do you need a two-month sabbatical? You need to refresh in some the, way. Yes, somehow? is the answer to your the question. The answer is yes. I need a two-month you do. sabbatical. You really do. I mean, you absolutely do. You get to a point in the practice where if you don't, you get stale. What's the get... longest sabbatical you ever took? I never did. <laughs> you just, could just move into another career. Hypothetical just... advice. Yes. No, I actually, I, I would. Uh, I mean, I would take three weeks in the summer. Okay. Concurrent. I think mm-hmm. that makes a big, yes. big difference if you take them concurrent. Uh, the HR guy that I so much admire here at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase up in New York, he told me once. He says, "You have to take two weeks." You know, he says it takes three days to decompress, and you have to. You know, say take two weeks back to back. And I think in law, you probably take three. Um, if you were to uh, have a magic wand in this moment in time in history, September 2018, and it, it had the power with one waggle to fix any issue in the world. I'd get the whole bunch that's running Cuba out of there, and I would uh, put in some enlightened people who think of democracy and a capitalist system that could give the Cuban people a better life. And that would let me go back. <laughs> Have you been back? No, no. It's a difficult thing for me to do. Personally, and also, uh, they wouldn't give me a visa. So I'd have to, it's complicated. And you're kind of, there've been some you're a between. recognizable <laughs> face. Yeah, there've been there. some issues between us over the years. That not, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of uh, what in this season you're most hopeful for, makes you most optimistic, what would it be? I gotta believe that it's the place in which we live. We live in a great country. We have a great economy going right now. Life, you know, with all the electronic advances and everything, while it's a distraction and it's a problem, life is so much easier. You were talking about it in the context of legal research. I mean, uh, we, we live in a great moment in time, and I think our our future is bright. However, there are clouds in the horizon. And those clouds are that I'm firmly of the belief that a democracy is not inevitable and that we need to always be guardians of preserving our democratic system. 
and the norms and the things that we believe in, you know, the freedom of speech, the respect for the rights of minority, the, uh, you know, I mean, just the basic uh, tenets of freedom of the press. The press has a responsibility too, you know, to, to be a responsible press and things of that nature. So I think, I think we are living in great moments uh, in time, economically, technologically. We enjoy a wonderful system of government. Uh, but every citizen has a responsibility to maintain it for the next generation. That's good. Well, I am uh, I'm glad to have spent the time with you. This was great for Love me. Let's have Very some good nuggets. questions. Good job. All right. Appreciate it. Take care. Yeah. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that. There was a, a lot of real practical things in there, and I uh, enjoyed uh, hearing Mel's perspective on uh, coming over from Cuba. It's just uh, mind-boggling for me to think of uh, what that must have been like as a 15-year-old boy and then to think he uh, ultimately served in the White House and on the presidential cabinet. Just really cool stuff. Um, I also always leave someone like Mel's uh, presence with a reminder that uh, most of the really great leaders, there's, there's a sense of humility uh, that they have. And I really get that when I'm around Mel. He's, he's appreciative of the talents of other people and he's not so insecure that he's afraid to talk about the excellence of all the people around him. Um, and that was one of the things that probably didn't make it on to the interview, but he was uh, constantly saying positive, encouraging things about so many other people that he's worked with and that he served with. Um, I also leave reminded that the practice of trial law really does prepare people for a wide range of careers. I mean, all the skills of thinking and breaking down problems in strategically spotting issues and then uh, communicating a, a, a course of action based upon the problems. That's what trial lawyers do, but, and that's what most leadership positions involve. Seeing a problem, spotting the issue, analyzing a, a lot of complex data, and then communicating a, a course of action in a, in a clear way. So I always leave reminded that while I love practicing law and I hope to do it the rest of my life, uh, the skills are uh, transferable to many different things. Again, thanks for listening. We got some cool interviews coming up, including with uh, Federal District Judge Paul Byron, who shared uh, one of the most interesting stories about when he served as the uh, a war crime prosecutor in Bosnia for the Hague Convention. Uh, appreciate all the feedback. If you have any ideas on people to interview or constructive suggestions, send me an email at dave at pkblawfirm.com. Appreciate it. Have a great day.